Good evening, everybody. My name is Doug Andrews, and on behalf of the Ananda Palo Alto players, I'd like to welcome you to the third performance in all of time uh, of the original play, Meeting the Master. I had the unique experience of being present when the idea first appeared in the mind of my wife, Christy, and watched as the play evolved into what you're going to enjoy tonight. It's worth uh, remembering that the words that you're going to hear are essentially, for the most part, the words of the actual disciples. Uh, they have not been created, although, of course, some creative license, of course, has come into the play. Tonight, the part of Swami Kriyananda is going to be played by Naya Swami Dharmadas. Um, there's a story behind that, <laughs> the reason for the applause. And I also want you to know, there was something else I was supposed to say. Oh, if you like what's, uh, what, you what you see tonight, that the Ananda Palo Alto players will be performing a new rendition of Swami Kriyananda's Land of Golden Sunshine that will be available. Uh, all of you, if you look inside your programs, you'll see a little postcard there. And on that postcard are the dates. I believe it's February 15th and 16th. Is that correct? 12th and 13th in, of next year. And so you're welcome to join us there in Palo Alto for that. Uh, in addition, I wanted to point out that on the set tonight, after the play is, is, is over, you're welcome to come up, and there, it's, it's very much like a, what's the word, reliquy. Uh, there's a lot of relics, a lot of, of symbolism to the set that's behind here, salt and pepper shakers, for example, uh, that have meaning to them. So you might want to come up and actually look at some of, of those items. And finally, like all the things we do at Ananda, there is both a gift in giving and a gift in receiving. And so um, there are donation baskets there at the uh, top of the stairs on the landings there. And please feel free to donate as you feel to for the, to, to support the Palo Alto players. All right. Blessings. Thank you. Enjoy.
Doctor? Oh, coming, dear, coming. What am I going to do with you? Good evening. My name is Dr. Lewis, and this is my wife, Mrs. Mildred Lewis. We have been asked to share our first encounter with the great guru, Swami Yogananda. One, one second here. <laughs> my story begins on a fine October day in 1920. As I was leaving my dentist office, Davis Square in Somerville, Massachusetts, Walking diagonally across that square, a strange figure passed me by. A fast-moving figure. And he was clothed in... An orange coat! Oh, sorry, dear. Oh, well, yes, yes, you're right, my dear. He was clothed in an orange coat. Orange fatigue! Orange-colored high-lace shoes. With a large orange turban on his head. <laughs> of course. In seeing, in, in my surprise at seeing such a figure on the streets of Somerville, Massachusetts, I turned as he passed me and watched me as he disappeared across the square. Little did I realize at the time that it was none other than the Master, known at that time as Swami Yogananda, later known as Paramahansa Yogananda. One, one secondary, jeez. Although I did not meet the Master until Christmas Eve of that same year, uh, Mrs. Lewis actually met him first, ac actually shook his hand, if I recall. And Yes, I did. In the, in the fall, I attended a lecture at the Rosa Christian Society where Mrs. Clemens told me she wanted me to meet someone afterwards. She appeared with a dark-skinned Indian swami whose long black hair flowed over his shoulders. He was wearing... An, An orange, orange coat, coat, orange fatigues, orange-colored high shoes with a large orange turban on his head. Well, I wasn't accustomed to seeing anyone dressed in this fashion. Yet, I must have been a strange-looking figure to this Hindu Swami as he was to me. Mrs. Clemens then introduced me to this Oriental... Swami Yogananda Giri of Calcutta, India. I was no doubt so awestruck as to be speechless. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I had very little to say. But I will never forget this meeting. As we said before, Doctor met the Master on Christmas Eve. Yes. I made an appointment to meet him at Unity House, uh, Park Square in Boston. I had not been enthusiastic about meeting him, uh, uh, for the simple reason that I was somewhat prejudiced. I had heard many stories about the strange comings and doings of the fakirs of India, and I was not about to be fooled or taken in, so to speak, by such people. Nobody's going to hoodwink me. Mm -mm. However, as I have said, I did condescend to meet the Master at this time. And I well remember, as I entered the room, 
he gave me a little smile. We exchanged a few greetings, and we sat down to discuss various questions along religious lines. I said to him, Sir, I have read, in, I have asked many people the meaning of such passages as, If thine eye be single, thy body shall be full of light. I have not received a satisfactory answer to my question, nor has anyone been able to show me such a light. And he said to me, Can the blind lead the blind? They both fall into the ditch. Well, these were Jesus' words taken from our Bible, and it seemed like a reasonable answer to my question. Well, being an outspoken American, I said straight out, Sir, have you seen such things? Do you know the single eye? And he said, Yes, I think so. And I said, Do you think I could see such things? And he said, Yes, I think so. And I said, Well, show me. Well, he smiled and procured a tiger skin. Hmm. Tiger skin. And he set it on the ground and said, uh, Doctor, would you mind sitting down in front of me? Well, he was sitting cross-legged. And I had never, to my knowledge, sat cross-legged under such circumstances. But I said, yes, certainly. Well, somehow I managed to get down cross-legged. And I assure you, it was not the lotus position. And as I was sitting across from him, he looked me straight in the eye and said, Doctor, will you always love me as I love you? I had never been talked to in such a manner before. But as I looked at him, I saw something in him I had never seen in anyone before. And I said, yes, I will. And he said, that's fine, and rubbed his hands together and said, I take charge of your life. Well, what he meant by that, I didn't know at the time, but it felt all right, so I acquiesced and we proceeded. So I was sitting across from him, and he pressed his forehead against mine. He told me to look at that point between my eyebrows, which I did. He did not suggest anything that I see. He did not try to influence me in any way by suggestion. What I saw came in a natural way. I saw the spiritual eye because the master stilled the waves of my mind and allowed my own inner, inner intuition to see the doorway to the infinite. That vision has never left me. The Master once again pressed his forehead against mine. And then it is then that I saw the great light of the thousand-rayed lotus with its many, many rays, its, its, its silver leaves. and it's, it's the most exquisite thing that can be seen. After seeing all the wonderful things that I did, I, I was most grateful to this great man of realization. And then he said to me, Doctor, promise me one thing. 
promise me that you will not avoid me. Well, I was only too glad to promise that. But little did I realize how hard it would be to keep my promise in the difficult middle ground of discipline. But I did keep my promise and was, much, and was saved by much suffering and much delusion. I need to point out again that Dhaka's meeting the Master happened on Christmas Eve, and it was our custom to decorate the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. I knew the doctor had a meeting with the Master <coughs> and said he would be back in time to decorate the tree. I remember his instructions to have everything ready. Hour after hour passed. And soon it was midnight. I was getting upset. For how are we going to get the tree ready for Santa Claus before the children came running downstairs? Now I was going to do something about this Christmas tree business. So I prepared myself. There was a rocking chair in the kitchen and I planted myself in it. Sweater sleeves rolled up with a rolling pin clutched firmly in my right hand. There I sat. As the clock neared one o'clock, I first heard the automobile come into the driveway. The garage doors closed, the door opened, and soon footsteps came from the back hall into the kitchen. I was truly ready to swing that rolling pin. But Doctor came into the kitchen with the most divine smile on his face, as pleasant as could be, in the flow of being with Master. So I could not touch him. Of course, I dropped the rolling pin. Mind you, there were words all right, but that was all. And just for the record, the tree was put up and trimmed in plenty of time, and Santa did arrive before the children awoke. Yeah. Well, there, there is a story that Master used to tell from the lecture platform, and it is, when you are in God's light, nothing, not even a wrathful wife with a rolling pin, can hurt you. No, I was still very irritated with the master over the Christmas tree incident. <laughs> Soon after New Year's, Doctor and I arrived at Mrs. Hasey's house on a cold winter's night and took off our wraps. I was escorted into the parlor, and right in front of me was Swami Yogananda. Well, this was very upsetting. Dr. and Mrs. Hasey had arranged this meeting without my knowledge. I had said I was never going to get messed up with 
any religion. And no Hindu. I was called into a meeting with the master, a private meeting, which lasted only a few moments. When I came out, I was in tears. I don't recall what happened, but later I knew. His power, his spiritual power, had completely transformed my consciousness. A wonderful relationship had been established and I became a disciple. My loyalty and devotion has been unwavering ever since. Doctor always said, the year he met Master was his first real Christmas. And in the years to come, we always had Christmas with the Master in celebration of that first meeting. Doctor, hmm. Why don't we tell him that story? You know the joke that we pulled on Master? We put a string around his ankle and tied it to the doorknob. Oh, perhaps another time, dear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What about that time where you almost drowned? And then you remembered to direct your consciousness to the own by Oh, that's a good one. Uh, but perhaps another time, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. My name is Mary, Mary Buchanan. However, Swami Yogananda has given me the name Kamala, and this is what I go by. There are crossroads in life which change the entire direction of one's travels. For me, this was the hour of first seeing my guru. His precepts were to highlight my journey upon a way that led my heart and my thoughts Godward. That evening was January 13th, 1925. Such an eventful date. The Philharmonic Auditorium in Los Angeles was full to its 3,000 capacity, and everyone had come to hear the words of a certain emissary from India, from that land where sages have been nurtured throughout the ages, we were blessed to know one of her most illumined. Swami Yogananda came up on the platform, his orange robes identifying him with an ancient order of renunciates. My spontaneous first impression was youthfully recorded in my diary. I wrote that his smile was like the sunshine of a soul. His smile was so joyous, and it conveyed a warmth that seemed to envelop everyone present. How did I happen to be there? It was my mother, Dr. Frances Grant Buchanan, she had seen billboards with his picture 
Her interest was based on a respect for the teachings of India, and she was seeking truth. Was I also seeking truth? I was only 19. But when I saw him, I thought, now I have found someone who who can answer any question that I might ever want to ask. His public lectures always included a fund of enthralling and unforgettable stories. Each one of them, of course, conveying a certain spiritual concept. Once he shared with us that in his youth he had been extremely thin and that his present weight (laughs) had come as a blessing of healing from his own guru. He was aware that here in the Western world, saintliness is usually associated with thinness, even to the point of emaciation. And so it was with his keen sense of humor that he explained to everyone that in India, it's desirable to be pleasantly plump because a thin teacher is a walking advertisement for his scarcity of students. (laughs) On another occasion, At the end of a lecture, he invited everyone present to come up and to touch his arms, which he caused to vibrate with energy. It was really in the manner of an electrical machine. In the middle of another lecture that I attended, he asked if there were any physicians in the audience. He then invited two of them to come and join him up on the lecture dais. He wanted to demonstrate how he could control his own heartbeat. And so he had each doctor stand, one on either side of him, and he allowed them to take his pulse, one from each wrist. As they tracked his heartbeat simultaneously, they discovered that there were different rhythms running on each side of his body. And then in the middle of this, he stopped his heartbeat altogether. And then he chose to stop his breath. (gasps) Can you imagine the look of shock on the doctor's faces? (laughs) It was about nine months after I first began attending his lectures that I had my first conversation with him. I had gone backstage And I saw him. He was standing off by the wings. From a distance, I observed his gentle dignity and the reserve that was so natural with him. This teacher was revered in my heart and in my mind in a way that I couldn't explain. I learned later that This is the feeling of the disciple, for the guru. On that occasion, I approached him and he greeted me. During our conversation, he offered me counsel. He said to me, 
always keep your dignity and remember your power of thought and will. As I prepared to take my leave, I asked for his blessing. He placed his hand on my head and silently prayed. At first I felt a deep stillness come over me. And then a sacred joy began to fill me as my spirit was lifted in the most immense peacefulness. It wasn't long before Mother and I had struck a divine friendship with him. In fact, it was only midsummer when there was a knock at our door and Swami, smiling, was there with us. We felt so blessed to have him with us in our little cottage in Manhattan Beach. Mother and I were, of course, aware of his great spiritual stature. And yet his simplicity of manner allowed our very special respect for him to blend very naturally with the friendship that he gave us. Those days were sunny and warm. Swamiji loved to swim at the beach. Once he left with our chauffeur and they went to Pismo Beach, staying there for three days. When he returned, the chauffeur took my mother aside. He said to her in a very perplexed tone, Ma'am, I'm not sure what he was doing. He, uh, he went out to the sand dunes, sat down facing the ocean, and he stayed there all day, <laughs> every single day. <laughs> you know, one facet of the master's true saintliness lay in his willingness and in his ability to meet the constant demands of public life and to cope with every duty, and yet to remain permanently in the sanctuary of inner beatitude. But here now with us, he could roam in the cosmic vastness without even a part of his mind having to turn towards the multitudinous affairs of his daily life. As Jesus went to the mountaintop to pray, our guru had gone by the ocean to commune with his heavenly father. We often went on scenic drives together, which were very beautiful, and the setting for great spiritual inspiration. On one of these chauffeured drives, I was seated next to him in the back seat of the car when he entered a state of samadhi. Outwardly, he became very still. Inwardly absorbed in God, his consciousness was completely interiorized. I was aware of this. When we returned to the house, my mother and the chauffeur, they got up and they went indoors. 
I hesitated, though. I, I didn't know what to do. I, I thought perhaps the master would like to be alone. Or perhaps he would prefer that someone stay and remain with him. Feeling this inner conflict, I decided that I would stay, but only for a little while. So I sat next to him very quietly in the car. And then I too got up, and I went indoors. I understood what an incredible blessing it is for a disciple to stay to remain in the Guru's presence and to receive the blessings of being so near Also during his time in our home, he often kept a small autograph book where he would inscribe thoughts and prayers. Here with us tonight, I'd like to share with you one of the entries that he wrote. Wherever in this house I have prayed, I leave an everlasting altar of devotion built in the invisible ether wherein ye shall find him always in these self-same places quickly delve deep within yourself with reverence and with steady concentration and ye shall find that secret altar. Did you know that he traveled quite extensively? Once, when he returned from an extended tour, he brought back for all of us his favorite fruit, mangoes. He also brought with him recordings from India and the music of Amelita Galikorchi, very famous opera singer. She's also a disciple of his. He loved to listen to this music. We, of course, cherish the opportunity to share in his joy. One evening, <laughs> after dinner, he delighted everyone with a dramatic portrayal of Anthony's famous oration from Julius Caesar. It was a flawless reading done by candlelight. Even so, it wasn't long before all of Anthony's famous strains and all other earthly drama were forgotten as we turned our hearts and minds together in meditation. During another of his tours, he'd been gone, I think, for about 11 months, I underwent surgery and was in the hospital. I spent seven months 
there in a full body cast. I'll never forget the day that my mother came into my hospital room. She had an expression of delight on her face. I knew that my guru had returned. I could feel the radiance that his ever-present bliss state imparted. He brought me English toffee <laughs> and a curry dinner that he had personally prepared for me. I have known God's healing to reach many people through the channel of my enlightened guru. Although I was in a tremendous amount of pain, I never sought nor asked for any kind of physical healing. This is because I have asked God to bring all of my karmic debts into this lifetime so that I can pay them and be free. I may have invited much, considering our many past lives. One evening, while he was visiting me in the hospital, he was seated in a chair next to my hospital bed. During our conversation, he turned and he looked at me. He said, Kamala, I see marriage for you. Years later, the conditions that he described upon meeting my future husband, Edward, happened exactly as he had foretold. And later, when I was ordained the first female minister for self-realization fellowship, Edward and I had the great blessing to run a center for master in Oakland, California. Throughout my life as a disciple, I have been blessed with many sacred experiences. One morning at Mount Washington, a group of fellow disciples and I had gone outdoors to bid goodbye to a departing guest. As we were returning to the front entrance, we saw a master. He was seated at his balcony in the morning sunlight. He greeted the group of disciples and many of us responded to him speaking quietly. I stood back though, looking at him carefully. I needed to be sure of what it was I saw. It was unlike any vision that I had formerly known. I saw that Master was blue-colored. It wasn't an aura. The, the very texture of his skin was that mystic Christmas blue. The, um, the vibratory color of Christ consciousness. In that moment, I understood Master is complete. He is one with Krishna and with Christ. 
And it was only by his grace that I was blessed with such a vision. Early in his life, he tells us that he was given a preview of two pathways and the privilege to choose which of them he would follow. One was for a meditative life along the river Ganges in India with no suffering or concerns. The other, to come to America, to offer spiritual guidance to countless thousands. Yet he would experience great physical suffering at the end of his life. We are so blessed, you and I, that his decision was for our benefit, for the countless thousands in the future, who through his teachings will also find their way to God. Hello, my name is Durga Mata. I was born Florina Alberta Dufault on November the 8th, 1903, in a French settlement in Iron Mountain, Michigan, where we only spoke French. I was the youngest of ten children, <laughs> but I don't remember anything about my childhood, except I was always sick and a great deal of trouble to my mother. My aunt, feeling so sorry for my mother because of my continuous illness, said she was carrying me as a babe to be baptized at our Catholic church. It was winter. There was ice all around. And this thought crossed her mind. She thought, what would happen if I accidentally slipped? Put this one out. Well, wouldn't that be so much easier for my sister? She said she was just kidding. <laughs> well, she was later said she was glad it did not happen because I was a great deal of help to my mother. I cooked and I cleaned by her side and, well, in fact, I couldn't bear to have her out of my sight for fear something might happen to her. And every morning I'd walk with her alone in the dark, together, because I could not bear to have a walk alone. Later I asked Master, why was I born into a Catholic family? He said, it was because of your devotion. When my mother died, I prayed that I too would die. And so I became severely ill. But my life was spared because, you see, Master intervened before I had even met him. It was, a, it was a dream vision. I was laying on my bed, and he was sitting right here next to me. Well, I thought it was a woman because he had long hair and a robe. Well, he picked me up sideways so our hearts were even. 
and I felt this electric wave go through my body and out my toes. I looked at him and I said, "Am I dead?" And he said, "No, you are not dead." And he laid me back very gently. But he looked at me strangely. He said, "What is the matter with your eyes?" And he took his two fingers and he poked them right through my eyes. Well, again, that same electric wave went through my body and out my toes. I did not know anything physically was wrong with my eyes, but to this day, two things have happened. I do not have to wear glasses. And he opened my spiritual eye. I physically saw Master for the first time, December nineteenth, nineteen twenty-seven, in Detroit, Michigan, at a lecture hall. I sat spellbound, looking at the most beautiful man I had ever seen, with his. Long hair flowing over his shoulders, his orange robe, and his large lotus, dark, expressive eyes. He was playing his harmonium. Oh God, beautiful! Oh God, beautiful! I had never heard chanting before. And it fascinated me to the core. Do you know that Master gave me that very same harmonium years later? You see, I always thought of God as Jesus, without ever the hope of finding Him. But this chant had deeply appealed to me because it spoke of a God that was tangible. And so I took all the Yagoda lessons from Brahmachari Narod. I learned exercises and meditation techniques and breathing exercises. The master came again in 1928 and 1929. Well, I was still having health issues, so the doctor suggested I move to a warmer climate. So I chose Los Angeles. Well, in 1929. Master, he shook hands with everybody in the auditorium, and when it came to me, I said, "I am coming to Los Angeles soon." And he said, "Oh, when you go, you must come to Mount Washington and see us." I was so happy he invited me. So on November the eighth, nineteen twenty-nine. My husband, Mr. Darling, who had married at the age of nineteen, I was now twenty-six. He saved up for a bus ticket from Detroit, Michigan, to Los Angeles for my birthday, and I stayed at the YWCA. Mr. Darling later willingly gave me up for a life of service to God and to Guru. Well, as I said, I stayed at the YWCA, and every day to help at the center, I'd walk up this long, winding three-mile road all the way up to Mount Washington. It was quite a trek. But the minute I would step my first foot on the beginning of that hill, I could 
Hear the Om, as if Master himself were beckoning me. It was about the second day that I had arrived, and I walked into the lobby at Mount Washington, and I saw no one, so I went into the kitchen, and there was Master. He was standing next to the stove, and he said, Well, well, where have you been? YWCA? And um, I advanced to shake his hand, and again, that same electric wave, it went through my arm, out my body. He told me later that at that instant, he recognized my face as one of the many he had seen in a vision before coming to America. So he asked me to stay for dinner, and I began to help um, washing pots and pans and whatnot. But all of a sudden, I just felt very ill. And I so I left the kitchen. I met Brahmachari Narod in the hallway. He had since moved to Mount Washington. And I said, I, I'm not feeling well. I must leave because I cannot be of use to anyone. And he said, well, why don't you just lay down in the girls' room for a while until you feel better? I said, no, 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 no. I cannot be a burden to anyone. So I left. Well, Master said later, he was so disappointed I had left. He thought, what is this, Lord? Is she turning away so soon after returning home? He said, when I found out from the road you were ill, I actually felt better. <laughs> he said, I was making this dinner in honor of your homecoming after incarnations of absence. Had I known that, I would have stayed, whether it cost me my life. This is one time that ignorance was not bliss. About a month later, I moved into Mount Washington, and we had meditations every Thursday. And after this meditation, there was this, a fire crackling in the fireplace, and Master leaned up against one of the pillars, and he told wonderful stories of India. Then he asked everyone to retire, but he asked me to stay, so I sat very quietly beside him. He turns to me suddenly, and he says, Ma Durga. Wow, this unexplainable thrill goes through my body. He said, Ma Durga was a name I had given you in another lifetime. We were together in an ashram in India. You were none, and you cooked for me too then. So you see, to Master, this lifetime, just a continuation of that previous incarnation. <laughs> there was once when Master introduced me and a woman named Carla as musicians. Well, I pulled him aside as soon as I could. I said, why did you introduce me as a musician? You know I don't know one note from another. And he said, well, that is why I want you to play. 
He said Carla is a child protege, but she cannot play my chants because there are no notes. And if there were notes, she would play them perfectly, but it would not come from her heart. He said that's why I want you to always come from your heart, your mind, and what naturally comes to you from me. So after that, I always sang at Master Sankirtan's. I played the harmonium and the big drum. <clears throat> When a person sincerely and truly desires God, he manifests himself in the form of a blessed guru. I was scrubbing vegetables. At our kitchen sink, preparing for a banquet, and I was singing the second verse to "Door of My Heart." Wilt thou come? Wilt thou come? Just for once, come to me. And I turned, and there was Master, who was right by my side. He said. I have come. I have come. Oh, there was an incident I shall never forget. It was June, nineteen forty-eight, and some of us disciples we found ourselves in Master's room. And when I entered, he said, "Dooch." Master nicknamed me Dooge. Dooge, sit a little distance away from me. I do not want Divine Mother. Does not want anyone to touch me. And so Master began to speak of his love for Divine Mother, and she in turn used his voice so all of us could hear. Well, this ecstasy lasted for three days and three nights. So some of us were chosen to take dictation. At one point, Divine Mother called us all up by name, and she told us all our faults. Well, Master's tender heart came to all of our defense. But for me, it was a lesson I shall never forget. Divine Mother said, "Dooge." Well, she just took me over the carpet. Let me tell you. Dooch, you have been very selfish. You did not give up your room for a guest. And Master said, "Oh, please, Mother, do not punish her. Dooch is my is very unselfish, and she is my pal. And you know she takes on the sins of others. Please, do not punish her. Well, you can." You can imagine how remorseful we all felt. We just cried for those three days and three nights till we couldn't cry no longer. Well, it was my turn to take dictation, and、um, there is this little crack that of light that was coming from the closet, and I had to write in longhand for a very long, long time.
But first, a little history. So I was Master's personal assistant. I would do anything he asked of me. Well, once I had to find a garage that had a, a crane that could lift off an old broken, um, well, take the top of a, a house car and take it off an old broken chassis and put it on a new one. Oh, that's another story. Um, this one, this time I was working in an office and, um, well, I didn't have much education because I had to leave uh, when I was in the fifth grade to help my mother at home. So I was working in the office and this co-worker, well, she had an education. She uh, sent Master a note saying that, well, complaining that she did not like my work ethics because I was ignorant and uneducated. So... Master read me the note, and I said, well, <laughs> I am uneducated. And he said very defiantly, you may be uneducated, but you are not ignorant. Look at me. I do not know English beyond the parts of speech, but look what the Lord has written through me. And you will write too. I did not understand how much well, concern Master had over those words that that woman had said to me until Divine Mother dictated this. An ignorant but loving God secretly dictates to an ignorant, intelligent myself. Master said, Divine Mother wanted to prove to this woman that I was not ignorant because it was me who was chosen to take dictation and not her. <laughs> On that fatal March 7th, 1952, I was in Encinitas taking care of Rajasi. The phone rang at 9.45 at night to say, that Master had entered Mahasamadhi and that he had passed. I, we called Dr. and Mrs. Lewis and we drove through the night to Mount Washington and we arrived at 4 a.m. We never spoke. I broke the long silence when we entered Mount Washington by saying, I, I would give anything to see Master sitting on the edge of his bed, his legs swinging, greeting us all one by one, like he always did. But it was not meant to be. How 
Can one speak of a sorrow so deep that not even a whisper can loosen its roots? We all showed our outward sorrow, and I I stroked gently his beloved face. And all of a sudden this this serene peace came over the room. Everybody felt it. And it was only then that I I could appreciate the the beautiful look on his face and his his pudgy hands and his his feet that were still so soft. We wanted to make sure that Master had truly passed before we took him to Forest Lawn and so we decided that we would whisper the mantra he had taught us into his ear to bring him back into outer consciousness and I was chosen first and as I whispered into his ear I could hear his voiceless voice say why do you want me to come back in that old carcass? I said mentally, because we are selfish, sir. And he said, leave it to Durga to tell the truth. <laughs> when Rajasi whispered in his ear, he told him, I am Om. Everything is Om. I will enter your body and into the consciousness of everyone. There are no words to describe the feeling of seeing that divine face for the last time. My only consolation is what Master often said to us. I will go ahead to prepare a better place for you all. Where we will meet again in greater glory. I was born Edith Ruth Ann Devlin on July 4th, 1869, in Woodbridge, Canada. My earliest memories are of this small, white, English-style church. I was so small, I had to stand on the kneeling benches in order to see over the pews. But after I did that, I sang those hymns with all my heart. And when the minister told us, God will not allow you to depend on anything but him.
I understood him perfectly. When I was just four years old, my father died. This put our family into very difficult financial circumstances. My mother's parents were very wealthy, but they hadn't approved of her marriage. So they helped us very little. And what they did give, they gave begrudgingly. I was very small, but my mother confided in me completely. She told me all her heartaches, all her sorrows, the unkindness of her family, the fickleness and hypocrisy of society. At a very young age, I saw many tears, and I learned early to deal with suffering. I resolved that I would base my life on eternal realities. I believe my steady progress to the Master began then. As I grew into adolescence and womanhood, my independent nature increased. No one could force anything upon me. But when I saw something I wanted and believed in, I went after it fearlessly. I had an insatiable hunger for truth. I read constantly and reflected on the great thoughts of the world's great thinkers, especially religious philosophers and saints. I longed to know more about God and how to bring him close in my life. I don't remember having a single thought that didn't have behind it the thought of God. My mother said to me, If you don't marry, you will be lonely in your old age. I replied to her, I will never marry except for love. I longed for true love, but I was utterly unimpressed with the opposite sex. <laughs> Whenever a young man asked me out, the answer was always the same, no. A friend of my brother said, It's going to be a brave man that marries your sister Edith. <laughs> and then I met Mr. Bizet. He won the hearts of everyone who met him, including mine. We were 30 years old. I was 30 years old when we got married. And he was still in law school when our son was born, Clark Prescott Bizet Jr., but we always called him Rex because he was the king of the household. Eventually, we moved to Seattle. And when my husband found his true vocation as a teacher, Mr. Bazette became the dean of the law school at the University of Washington there. From my study of the wisdom of India, I knew that in order to reach my divine goal, I needed to have a guru. I resolved that until I found such a one to discipline and guide me, I would make life itself my guru. I would receive every experience with the attitude of a disciple, and I would see every circumstance of my life as a direct lesson from my guru. But, oh, I longed for that kind of training, 
that would allow me to make rapid spiritual progress. When that longing became very intense, Master came to Seattle. When I heard that Swami Yogananda was giving classes, I decided not to go myself. I was afraid that my interest in this long-haired Hindu yogi would cause unfavorable comment and would place Mr. Bazette in a difficult position at the university. So I asked Rex to go. He could learn, and then he could teach me. When he came home from the classes, he was very enthusiastic. But he had taken a vow not to reveal the techniques to anyone. Later, he explained his dilemma to Master and received his blessing to tell me. Oh, never-to-be-forgotten day. The answer to all my prayers, the fulfillment to all my longing, July 12th, 1925, the day I first met Master. The moment we saw each other, there passed between us the recognition of guru and disciple. Rex had invited a group of people, including Master, to come to dinner at our house. As we sat together around the dinner table, all the guests were fascinated by a novelty salt shaker we had. It was weighted at the bottom. And when you pushed it over, it always came up again. In turn, every guest at the table tried to lay it down, but always it came up. When it was Master's turn to try, he stared at it intently for a few moments. (laughs) Then he reached out, and he pushed it down, and it came up. And he pushed it down again, and again it came up, and then again. And then he laid it down, And it stayed down. When the guests expressed their astonishment, Master said simply, the mind was determined that it would stay down. (laughs) But later he said to me, I heard the voice of God say, for the benefit of sister, lay it down. Then he added, I knew then that God would draw you to this path. Later, I took Master to see my meditation room. Silently, he looked at the pictures of all the holy men there. Then turning his back to that long row of windows, softly, he prayed for me and gave me my first blessing, which enabled me to hear the Aum. For as long as we lived in that house, on the very spot where Master stood, I always kept a vase of orange flowers. The next night, again, we had guests for dinner, and Rex told them, about the curious incident with the Swami and the salt shaker. And these guests, too, 
tried to lay it down, but none could do it. When it was my turn to try, I pushed it down, and it stayed down. In amazement, they said, she can do it too. But it was not I who had done it. It was Master's vibration through me. From our first meeting, I have lived in His vibration. That was a time of almost ceaseless travel for Master. And after our first meeting, I didn't see him again for five years. But we wrote often, and I thought of him constantly. During those years, I had a heart attack and other serious ailments. When things got very bad, I wrote to Master and asked him to pray for me. Just at the time, I thought he would be receiving the letter. I was sitting on my meditation chair, and when the chair began to shake, I thought a big truck was driving by on the cobblestone street outside. So I looked out the window, but there was no truck. And then thunderous waves of ohm swept over and under the house. Master's vibrations healed me. Years later, I wrote to him, For sixteen years I have followed you from point to point, so that I no longer feel your absence. For wherever you are, There am I also, standing silently before you, waiting humbly, patiently, for the moment when you will offer to me a word or a smile. After Mr. Bizet died in 1932, I moved to Mount Washington. In my 60s, I became a monastic. Shortly after, Master initiated me into the Venerable Swami Order, giving me the name Gyanamata, which he said meant Mother of Wisdom through Devotion. But from our first meeting, Master always called me Sister, and so I was known to all. I wrote to Master, God alone has become my motto, and a sign with those words hangs above my bed as a reminder to me of my divine goal and of my resolution never to allow anything to come between you and me, and I never have. You are the pole star of my life. Whenever Master would enter a room, I would approach him silently, touch his feet, and then leave. Naturally, people asked me, why do you always leave the room when Master comes in? I said, because I don't want to give him the slightest reason to think he must pay any attention to me. 
I don't want him to think he must utter to me even a single word. I have been very fortunate from the beginning in this respect. My understanding of the guru-disciple relationship. It is not a friendly one. It is not a social one. It is not for work. It is not for service. It is not for pleasure. It is wholly spiritual. So deeply spiritual that it passes away beyond my sight or understanding. In the last years of my life, ill health kept me confined to my room most of the time. One day when I knew Master would be leaving, I sent a message through Kamala asking Master to pause on his way out and look up at my window where I would be watching for him. That day when he drove away, he stopped the car and for a long time we gazed at each other. And when he lifted his hand to bless me, I thought my heart would burst with joy. Whenever Master sent me a blessing or a healing, I was always conscious of receiving it. Sometimes I found myself attuned to his thoughts, even at a distance. One Sunday morning, I was in my room as usual, and Master was giving a lecture at one of our churches. I said to the nun next to me, Master has just revealed Divine Mother's words to him. Dance of life, dance of death. Know that these come from me and rejoice. What more dost thou want than that thou hast me? Later that afternoon, when Master came to visit, I told him how much I liked Divine Mother's words. He smiled at me and said, Ah, so you heard, did you? One Christmas, I wrote Master a note, which I left outside his door. For recognizing me as your disciple from the past at our first meeting in Seattle. For taking me in when I had no place else to go. For holding me to the path when, bewildered by an agony of pain, I knew not which turn to take. For everything that has happened since for all that you are, that I know you to be, for all that you are that I can never know, I offer you respect, gratitude, devotion, and love, but never enough, oh, never enough, it could never be enough.
Good evening. It's a joy to be with you this evening, fellow disciples of our Master. I think it's the best joy in this life, besides being with the Master himself. I understand that you would like me to speak about my life and about my meeting with Master and my years with him. Well, I'll slide over fairly lightly my years before I met Master, as I don't consider them of great importance, except as they prepared me to serve Master and the work. I was born on May 5th of 1892. My, that sounds like a long time ago now, doesn't it? (laughs) I was born in a farmhouse, on a little farm outside a little country town of Archibald, Louisiana. My father worked that farm. They rented the place. And when I came along, their fourth child, they named it James Jesse. James Jesse Lynn. Now that's a respectable enough sounding name, don't you think? But nobody ever called me that. I was always just little Jimmy. Considering my unremarkable beginnings, I suppose you might think my early life Fairly striking. Little Jimmy, born in poverty, pushing, scrambling, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, precocious, determined, being offered positions of greater and greater responsibility at a young age until I found myself, not yet 30, at the head of very large business concerns, railroads, insurance, petroleum. That was a a long story with many chapters. And I'm sure you'd probably consider it very exciting, as I certainly did at the time. But it all pales now in comparison with the true success, with the incomparable riches that Master has bestowed upon me these years since our meeting. When I met Master, I began a new life. Not so much outwardly, but inwardly. I, I became a new person, 
such that I, I scarcely recognize myself anymore. And later I received a new name, Rajasi. Rajasi Janakananda. I bet you never thought you'd hear Sanskrit pronounced with a Louisiana accent. <laughs> My life before I met Master, oh, business, business, and more business. I was under great strain, there's no mistake, managing very many big concerns all at once. I tried to lighten it, to leaven the intensity of it all by taking up golf. <laughs> the trouble was that I knew how to focus. I'd level my whole mind and all my faculties on everything I did with great intensity, including golf. <laughs> well, I, I, I became tolerably good at that game, won a few tournaments, well, more than a few, but I failed miserably at my principal intention to relax. <laughs> I bought an estate in the country, I took trips, I did everything I could to try to relax, but it, it, nothing worked. I had achieved significant success in business, but I could not enjoy it. What was I to do? And then it happened. One day, January 1932, I was driving to work one morning, going to my office in Kansas City, as usual, when I spied up ahead a billboard. What a striking-looking woman. <laughs> I craned my neck back and gawked up at the long, flowing hair, those remarkable, luminous eyes. I suppose it was a few days later when my eyes fell upon an announcement for a series of lectures given by a Hindu named Swami Yogananda. Well, you know, in those days, folks considered Hindus to be a bunch of snake charmers. But I felt a, a strong urge to go and hear this man speak. My wife, Frida, objected. What do you want to go and hear some heathen blabbering at you for? He'd probably stand you up in front of everybody and turn you into a monkey. <laughs> Make you look more foolish than you already are. Frida did not mince words. <laughs> Our home was not a haven of harmony and peace, which did not help me to relax. <laughs> well, I did not go to that lecture the first night. But when the time came for the second lecture, I was determined to go, whether Frida objected or not. And when she saw that my mind was made up, well, she came along with me to protect me, she said. <laughs> and you know, we were both so struck by the, the presence and power of Master that we went to every one of those lectures. And afterwards, we signed up for the class series. I suppose I had seen Master on stage three or four times, when suddenly it struck me, why, this saint up there on the platform is the self-same striking woman that I saw on that billboard. <laughs> Can you imagine? I told Master about it some months later, and we both got quite a chuckle out of it. You know, it was difficult for me to sit through all those lectures and classes. Not that I wasn't interested. Of course I was. I was fascinated. But my nervous system was so highly strained in those days 
that I could not sit still for long. My hands fidgeted and and twisted. My eyes twitched. But sometime on the second night of the class, I found that I was sitting upright. My spine was straight. And I was motionless. Absolutely motionless. I glanced down, unbelieving, at my hands and saw that they were still too. And as I marveled at this quietude that had come over me, I looked up on the stage. And there I saw, not just surrounding Master, but nearly the whole stage itself, a luminous blue light. And through that blue light, I could see Master looking right at me with that intense gaze of his, and he was smiling. And I tell you, from that night on, I have never been restless since. Almost never. Well, my snake charmer bias quickly gave way to a a reverence for the saints of India who embodied the highest of all sciences, yoga, the science of soul exploration. Do you know that on that very first meeting that I had with Master in private, He was able to confer upon me an experience of samadhi, ecstatic union with God. That was the beginning of my yoga practice. (laughs) I I was very fortunate, I suppose. All, All those years of intense concentration I had developed in business... I now focused upon Master's teachings and techniques. He spoke about it in a class once after that. He told people that in our first meeting that I had touched the Christ consciousness. His soul was ripe, Master said. And I suppose it was. And he repeated the words that he had heard heard me speak at that meeting. Life boils in my spine. This is the technique that I have been seeking. I have found the path to God. Well, right away, Master instructed me that despite my many and complex business responsibilities, that I must arrange my schedule to provide for a period of meditation every day. So I woke early each morning and drove to the office before dawn. I put a note on my secretary's desk. Do not disturb. I am in conference. (laughs) Well, it was true. I was in conference with God. After this transformative spiritual awakening, just as before, I kept a full schedule of business responsibilities, which I maintained for another 20 years. Oh, but I, I chafed in the harness. I strained at the bit. I wanted to be free, to be free, to to be with Master. I felt trapped in my old life, trapped, surrounded by people whose principal aims were material gain. When Master left Kansas City, I was bereft for some while, but we stayed in touch, corresponded often. I, I, I brought with me one of the letters that I wrote to Master, in those early days. 
How distressed I am when pulled away from Divine Mother and from communion with her loved ones. I cannot live of this world, and I would prefer not to live in it. I look forward with deepest earnestness to my return to your side. Please, write often. Even a few words, just a note, sustains me to a degree that I know it is hard for you to realize. Divine blessings, devotion, and boundless love. Your little boy, James. Master called me his little boy. He never called me Jimmy. That name seems like a long time ago now, but strangely present, Master called me his little boy. He used to say to me often in those early years, I am in you, and you are in me. I didn't have the foggiest idea what he was talking about. (laughs) Not really. It was poetic, and I, I found it inspiring, but I didn't truly understand. But as we practice these teachings over years, Master changes us, does he not? And now, I feel Master's presence with me strongly, inwardly, around me, ceaselessly. And where there's Master, there's always ineffable love, boundless joy. But now I have forgotten what my story was. (laughs) Master, used to say to me, you are in business for God. Nothing must hinder your fulfilling your mission on earth. My mission on earth. My mission on earth. Master wrote to me several times in letters in those early days that he and I had incarnated into this life in order to build and establish this work of self-realization, that that was the purpose for this lifetime. Disciples often hold me in high regard, but I did not teach. I did not write, nor lecture. I, I spoke, but seldom and briefly. But I did meditate with as much concentration and devotion as I could muster. I practiced the teachings and the techniques sincerely and powerfully. I attuned myself to Master, and I worked and worked and worked for God. I tried to support the work as best I could. The needs of the organization were significant and ongoing. Master was always bursting with ideas, hatching new projects, And I sometimes could not meet the needs of those projects, at least in the short term. But slowly, steadily, surely, we built a solid foundation under the work. Business was not my only concern. My wife, Frida had attended Master's classes and practiced the teachings for some while. 
But the time came when she saw me receiving so much spiritually that she began to feel that Master was taking me away from her. She got more and more sensitive about this until to my great dismay, she turned against Master altogether. Got to the point where she would fly off the handle at the very mention of his name. Master said I attracted her as a wife to learn patience. (laughs) God gives us the teachers that we need. Prior to meeting Master, I had had another Eastern teacher by the name of Dr. Gyani. And when my association with this teacher was made public around the local area of Kansas City, it had, well, what only, could only be described as disastrous effects on my business. And now I feared, and rightly so, especially considering Frida's change of mind and heart, that any publicity around my continued association with Master might have equally disastrous results on my business. This was a serious concern. I chewed on it hard for some while. I fretted and fretted about it. I did not know what to do. But one day, finally, when I was sitting with Master, I put the problem to him. He was quiet for a while, and then he said, Follow me silently. Do not mention my name. He assured me that he would do all in his power to protect my secrecy and my position. I must admit that that did give me some peace of mind. But a happy solution it was not. How was I to joyfully hide, to keep in secret that which would become the very foundation and center of my life? How was I supposed to be quiet? about that which was my very purpose and reason for being. Slowly, I accustomed myself and adopted, held my new life secret as I held it sacred and went about protecting, shepherding my soul life and my God-given duties from all affront. I think back now to 1935 when Master felt the inner call to return to India. Now, that was a very ambitious undertaking in those days. But he was feeling the strong, the strong call of his guru and of God. And so we arranged for first class ocean passage for Master and his entourage. And the Ford automobile that we sent along to help him get around India and Europe more easily. That proved to be a very important trip. He made a number of remarkable meetings on that trip that he wrote about later in his autobiography. And while he was away, we were busy cooking up a surprise for him. Master had often wanted, dreamed about, a retreat by the ocean. Well, we found the perfect seaside property in the little village of Encinitas, California. And we sat right in, designing, constructing, and furnishing those buildings, running circles around ourselves, trying to get ready before Master's return. You should have seen his face when he saw it. He was beaming, smiling from ear to ear. He couldn't stop laughing and 
exclaiming how beautiful it was, how beautiful it was. We were just as happy as he was, I think. Master and I meditated there beside the ocean together day and night. Never before had I experienced such unity, such friendship, such perfect communion, utter joy. You must forgive me for talking so much about myself. It does feel odd. I think about myself little these days. I have no desires left. But I I do feel the strong desire that you should understand what Master has done for me and can do for you. And along these lines, I'm feeling the inner permission from Master just now to share a story with you, a strange story, something that Master did for me. In August of 1914, it became clear that I was suffering from a brain tumor. August of 1952, I meant to say, several months after Master's passing. And on August 14th, an operation was performed to remove that tumor. Sometime during the operation, which was a delicate and dangerous one, my soul slipped from my body. But Master slipped in and occupied this body from that time until about seven days henceforth. Sister Durgamata witnessed it when she came to visit me in my hotel room. I had my back turned to her when she heard me speak to her in a strong voice that sounded like, not like my voice, but like Master. Bring me a Kleenex. The truth was that I had died on that operating table, but Master had come in at the crucial moment and then brought me back when it was all right. Several months after Master's passing, His blessings opened to me a higher state of samadhi. It came in a very strange way. For three days, I could feel nothing. No matter how hard I concentrated, no matter how deeply and sincerely I prayed, there was nothing. No light, no vision, no sabakalpa samadhi, not even any presence or sense of grace, just a, a great emptiness. And then, on the fourth day, I saw a speck of light at the Christ Center, and as I entered it, I became that light which expanded and expanded until it flooded out into eternity. And from then on, waking or sleeping, ceaselessly, endlessly, body or no body, that vision has never left me. The friendship that Master and I shared in the drama of this life is rare. Lovers of God We swam together in the sea of God. You should have seen us there at Encinitas in the evenings, hand in hand, like little children, walking up and down, up and down the flagstone pathway, or out across the lawn, overlooking the sea, 
our eyes alive with love, our souls shining, embers burning with the friendship that we felt in God. You and I are forever free, Master once wrote me in a poem. My little one, you and I are one in Mother Supreme, in her eternity's dream. And when this earth dissolves into cosmic dust, and our bodies dissolve as they must, still our souls as a blended starlet will shine forever, ever expanding in the divine. Well, there's nothing more to say. Good evening. And may all of Master's blessings be yours. My birth name was J. Donald Walters. I was in New York at the age of 22 when after I had read Paramhansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, my impulse was to jump on the first bus across the country to meet him in California. Not wanting to act impulsively, however, I waited a whole day. (laughs) Thereafter, for the next four days and four nights, my home, so to speak, was a succession of buses. I arrived in Los Angeles on September 11, 1948. Exhausted from my journey, I took the first opportunity to bathe and shave And then I took a bus 100 miles south to the seaside town of Encinitas, where I understood Yogananda had his hermitage. Arriving in Encinitas, too late in the day and too tired from my long journey, I checked into a hotel and fairly collapsed on my bed, I slept around the clock, and the following morning, I awoke September 12, 1948, and with bated breath, I made for the ashram, walking through the little streets of the town of Encinitas. I reflected that Yogananda had once described in his autobiography going to meet a saint, but he didn't give him prior notice. Yet before he reached the saint's village, the saint came out to welcome him. Did Yogananda know that I was coming? And would he too come out to welcome me? Well, the answer to the second question at least was, no such luck. I approached the hermitage and 
knocking at the door. May I help you? Is uh, Paramahansa Yoga Nander in? Oh, you've come to check the water. <laughs> I was wearing a white Palm Beach suit, and combined with my clearly unfamiliar mispronunciation of this name and my attire, must have given the impression of being some sort of a serviceman. So you've come to check the water? No, is uh, is Paramahansa Yogananda in? Who? Oh, yes. No. He, he's away for the weekend. May I help you? Yes. Uh, no, I mean, I want to see him. He's lecturing at our church in Hollywood. You, you have a church there? It began to seem that I wasn't making the best possible first impression. I want to join his work. I want to live in the ashram. Have you studied the printed lessons? Lessons? I didn't know there were... He had any lessons to be studied. There's a whole set of them, and you would have to complete the lot before you could possibly live here. How long would that take? Four years. Four years? How, how could I get to the Hollywood church? <sighs> Soon I found myself traveling back to Los Angeles. On my way, I alternated between bouts of heated indignation at this woman's presumption that I wouldn't be able to live at the ashram and desperate prayers for acceptance. Never in my life had I wanted something so desperately. Later in the journey, as I was reminded of my hostess and about to wax indignant once again, I was suddenly reminded of her eyes. They were very calm, and I reflected with some astonishment, wise. Forgive me, I prayed, for misjudging her. There's more to her than I had understood. It was wrong of me to think unkindly of her. Surely she is a great soul. Forgive me. As I had this thought and offered this prayer, it seemed that a great cloud lifted from my consciousness. I arrived at the Hollywood Church, 4860 Sunset Boulevard, at three in the afternoon. When I entered the church, a lady greeted me from behind a long table. May I help you? I explained my mission. And she consulted a black leather appointment book and told me that the master's time was completely filled. I asked, when would he be available? She said, oh, it wouldn't be before two and a half months. 
two and a half months. But I've come all this way from New York just for this. She smiled sympathetically and asked, How had I heard of him? I said, A few days ago I read his autobiography. So recently? And you came just like that? Most people write. Didn't you write? I admitted it hadn't even occurred to me to write. Over, I prayed. I thanked her and began to walk a bit morosely around the church. I examined the architecture, the stained glass windows, and reflected that It was indeed a peaceful place for meditation. But within, I was anything but peaceful. This morning, I had been told that it would take four four years before I could join his organization. And now I had just been told that it would take two and a half months before I could even meet him. I was becoming more and more desperate. Then a novel thought struck me. Perhaps I simply wasn't ready. This thought came to me suddenly, and when it struck me, I thought, well, if this is so, then I will simply move to the hills nearby and study his printed lessons attend the services, and when, I'm re- when I am ready, surely the Master will call me. Undoubtedly, I needed this lesson in humility. Perhaps everything had gone too easily for me. Perhaps I was too confident. At any rate, when the thought occurred to me and I accepted that I might indeed not be spiritually ready. The situation changed dramatically. I had decided to leave and move for the door, and just as I reached it, the lady who had greeted me called out to me, Since you've come so far, let me just check with the Master and see if he would speak with you. A few moments later, she came out and said, He will see you next. Soon I was ushered into a small sitting room. What large, lustrous eyes greeted me. What a compassionate smile. Never before in my life had I beheld such divine beauty. The master seated himself on a chair and motioned me to the couch nearby. He gazed at me with great compassion and said, What may I do for you? I want to be your disciple. 
The words welled up irresistibly from my heart. Never before had I dreamed that I would utter such words to any living being. The master smiled gently. There ensued a long conversation, interspersed with long silences, during which he held his eyes half open, half closed, reading me as I well knew. Over and over, I prayed desperately, You must take me. I know you know my thoughts. I can't say it outwardly. I'd only burst into tears. But you must accept me. You must. The master, early in the conversation, said to me, I only saw you, agreed to see you, because Divine Mother told me so, too. It isn't because you've come from so far away. I only do what God tells me to do. Divine Mother told me to see you. The discussion turned to my past. The Master seemed pleased with my replies and my truthfulness. I knew that, he said at one point, indicating that he was testing me to see if I would answer him truthfully. More silence, and I prayed ardently for acceptance. At a certain point, he asked me how I had liked his book. Oh, it was wonderful. He told me, that is because it has my vibrations in it. Vibrations? Never thought of books as containing vibrations. But clearly, this book had in it the power to convey not only ideas, but new states of awareness. Incongruously, even absurdly, it now occurred to me that he might accept me more readily if I could show that I could be of some practical use to him to demonstrate my ability. Sir, I found several split infinitives in your book. Twenty-two years old, literarily untried, but already a budding editor. I've never lived down that faux pas. Master took it with a surprised, then amused smile. The motive for my remark was transparent to him. More silence. More prayers. Finally, he said, All right. You have good karma. You may join us. Oh, but I can wait. I wanted to be sure he wasn't taking me just because I hadn't found a place to stay. No, you have good karma. Otherwise, I wouldn't accept you. 
he gazed at me with deep love and said, I give you my unconditional love. Immortal promise. I couldn't begin to fathom the depth of meaning in those words. Then he said, Will you give me your unconditional love? I said, Yes. And will you give me your unconditional obedience? Desperate though I was to be accepted by him, I felt that I had to be utterly honest with him. I said, Sir, what if I think you're wrong sometime? He said, I will only ask of you what God tells me to. When I met my master, Sri Yukteswar, he said, allow me to discipline you. Why, sir? Because in the beginning of the spiritual path, one's will is guided by whims and fancies. As mine was, too, until I met my guru, Lahiri Mahashai. Only by attuning my will to his wisdom-guided will did I attain freedom. So you, too, by attuning your will with mine, may attain freedom. I gazed at the Master and from my heart said, I give you my unconditional obedience. Master continued, When I met my Master, Sri Yukteswar, He gave me his unconditional love as I have given you mine. Then he asked me, will you give me your unconditional love? But I said, what if I should ever find you less than a Christ-like master? Could I love you the same way? Sri Yukteswar looked at me sternly and he said, I don't want your love, it stinks. I understand, sir, I told Master. The Master had struck at my greatest weakness, intellectual doubt. I give you my unconditional love. Now then, Master said, come, kneel before me. He made me repeat in the name of God, Christ, and our line of gurus the vows of discipleship and renunciation. Then, touching me on the chest over the heart, his arm vibrated almost violently for at least two minutes. After that time, in some all-penetrating manner, my consciousness was completely transformed. 
I left the interview room in a daze. Moments later, the master came out on the stage. Smiling quietly, he said, We have a new brother. (laughs) 